Welcome to our podcast, Breathe In, Write Out, a podcast for high school, college, and university students about making the most out of academic life. We touch on study skills, student life, career transition, overall well-being, personal development, and other topics that impact young adults. At the end of each podcast, we send our listeners off with a short guided meditation and writing prompt. We hope that through these discussions, meditations, and writing exercises, we can build an open, caring, compassionate community that supports personal growth. I'm Lisa Fow, the founder and CEO of Fow Academic Writing, where we focus on teaching young adults the communication skills necessary to reach their full potential on the page and in life. I'd like to welcome my co-host and namesake, Lisa Monk. Thanks, Lisa P. What a great name. You can call me Lisa M for short. I'm a recent psychology graduate from the University of Toronto, and I also work with Lisa P as the creative marketing assistant at FAO Academic Writing. Get into a cozy spot, grab your pen and notebooks, and let's meet our first guest. This week's episode is about finding a career in the arts as a recent graduate. While a BA degree provides students with transferable skills such as critical thinking, which can be used for a number of career paths, many choose to attend graduate school and eventually become a professor. We thought it'd be helpful for students to hear about the different types of career paths available after completing a Bachelor of Arts, as I know it can be hard to figure out what you want to do, especially during a recession with limited opportunities. This week's guest is Danielle Law, an associate professor in psychology and youth and children's studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. Danielle is also the director of the Child and Adolescent Research and Education Care Lab. Her research focuses on the social emotional development of children and youth and their mental well being. Danielle's primary area of research focuses on online aggression, associated mental health concerns, responsible internet use and creating caring communities. She strives to connect academia with the community with her research, teaching, and learning philosophies. Welcome to our podcast, Breathe In, Write Out, Danielle. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for being on our podcast today. Um, I think a lot of undergraduates especially are kind of intimidated by the professors because professors have PhDs and there's this idea that they're very intelligent. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what some of your daily work is like? (laughs) Um, I can tell you one thing, we're not super intelligent. (laughs) Um, A lot of hard work goes into it and I wouldn't necessarily say that um, it's all about the smarts but more about the perseverance. Um, So yeah, some of the things that we do as professors varies actually. So it really depends on what kind of professor you are. So there's one type that is contract based and these professors focus primarily on teaching. So typically each year they would apply for a different teaching position at one or more post-secondary institutions and they might teach multiple courses at a time. So these types of professors spend most of their time preparing and delivering courses. Another type of professor is a full-time tenured or tenure track professor. And these professors are typically responsible for teaching, research, and service um, to the university and to the community. 
and I'm, I'm a full-time tenured pr professor. So my workload is 40% teaching, 40% research, and 20% service. And I divide that, that service up to both um, community service and also service to the university. I guess my daily work really depends on the time of year. So in the fall and winter, uh, teaching really um, consumes a lot of my, my time, even though um, it is really officially 40% of my total workload. So I'm focusing a lot on teaching, but I'm also going to meetings to help with program development, curriculum de development, um, and a bunch of different administrative parts of running a university. I also run my, my research lab, so the Child and Adolescent Research and Education Lab, or the CARE Lab, and here I work closely with students to conduct research and disseminate our findings in accessible ways that go beyond just research articles that only academics read, really. So we try to develop programming and workshops and infographics to help um, educate and inform the community in ways that um, are more easily understandable. And then I also help run programming for youth girls who come from under-supported communities. So once a week, myself and a handful of students will run programs for young girls between the ages of 12 and 14 to help build relationship with them, help them to have a positive adult figure in their life, um, help to be there for them if they have any questions about growing up mm -hmm. and how to have positive relationships and what are wow. healthy boundaries and all of these things. So we do that once a week with these girls and um, it's a lot of fun and we're, we're learning a lot with them. So that's what I do in the fall and the winter. That's a lot. It's a busy schedule. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I enjoy it. So that's good. Um, but yeah. So then in the summer and in the spring, I'm usually preparing for the fall. So preparing my courses and whatnot. But then I'm also writing manuscripts for publication and also working on research projects. I also supervise graduate students. So graduate supervision happens all year round. So like, for example, next week, I have a thesis defense um, for one of my students. So um, their exam will be happening or their defense will be happening then. And then also committee meetings um, for the university, those also don't stop. So um, we're still, you know, meeting to talk about program development and, and recruitment and all of that stuff. Wow. <laughs> And that's why it takes so long for your professor to reply to your email. Yeah, really sorry about that. <laughs> I apologize on behalf of all professors. It also explains a little bit about why we're so scattered. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the scatterbrained professor stereotype holds true, at least for me. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a lot to take on and getting to become a professor is also a kind of stressful process with a lot of work, although not as much as actually being a professor, I think. So, <laughs> I mean, for me, I decided not to do my PhD because I didn't want to be in school that long. What inspired you to pursue graduate studies after your BA at the University of Alberta? Um. 
It's interesting because I had, I didn't really have a plan um, to become a professor. So everything just kind of happened and I went with the flow. Um, yeah, I originally, when I was at U of A doing my bachelor's in psychology, I was preparing myself to do an after degree in education. And so I was really interested in being an elementary school teacher. Wow. Um, yeah. So, cause, so I took developmental psych courses and was really interested in how young children grow and learn, um, all in preparation to be an elementary school teacher. Then in my last year of my bachelor's, when I was doing my psychology internship, my supervisor there had encouraged me strongly to apply to grad school. And I rolled my eyes and said, I don't want to do something so boring. I don't think I'll get in anyway. So I didn't think it was for me. And so I kind of brushed it off, but he was persistent and I'm glad that he was. And he, he said that, no, he, you should really apply. So I applied and I applied to two schools, U of A and UBC. And then I also applied to become an elementary school teacher because I still wanted to do that. Okay. Um, it turns out I ended up getting into um, both grad school and the faculty of education, but I ended up choosing to go to UBC for a couple of reasons. One, it tends to be harder to get into grad school than into right. education. And so if I ended up not liking grad school, I could always fall back on to education, but it would be harder to do it the other way around. Mm-hmm. And um, UBC also um, said that they'd pay my way. And so I couldn't pass up <laughs> free tuition. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, fine. I'll go to grad school. <laughs> so I ended up going to UBC for my master's and absolutely loved it. I loved oh. my supervisor. I loved my research lab. I loved my, the friends that I made there and what I was learning. and after completing my master's, well, in the middle of completing my master's, I decided to apply for the PhD program. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then it just took off from there. Wow. So yeah, it was a, it was definitely a long process, but it just happens one step at a time. And you don't really notice how long it is when you're in it. Well, that's only sort of true. When you're sweating over the thesis, you recognize how long it is. But, but if you take things one little step at a time, it's, it doesn't feel so overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. I think that story really speaks to how you don't... I think a, I think a lot of people think people that they see as quote-unquote successful, like enjoying their career you know, doing well, accomplishing things, somehow envisioned this when they were seven. But um, actually, you know, what happens with a lot of people is that you go through a path and you make a choice and you go this direction, you learn some more stuff and you maybe pivot a little bit. And only when you look back on 20 years of work, then you can sort of see how you got there. But when you started out 20 years ago, you didn't see the end goal. Yeah, makes sense. But so I think I really appreciate how you told the story as like, you know, 
I didn't really want to do this, but somebody pushed me. And then, you know, I applied to these different <laughs> programs and I thought, well, someone's going to give me money. Sure. And then <laughs> you ended up liking it. And it's yeah. supposed to show life is not linear. Life is definitely not linear and it takes you to places beyond your expectation. Like I didn't even realize I would end up in Ontario. I was so firm after I graduated that I wanted to stay in Vancouver because it's Vancouver and who would want to leave. And I, I basically was not applying to any jobs outside of BC, but then I finally decided to, you know, open my mind a little bit and open a few doors and I immediately got this position or interviewed for and then finally got um this position at Laurier and it's the one of the best decisions that I made like I love my time at Laurier I love the community I love my colleagues my students I wouldn't leave and now there have been positions that have come up at UBC and people are asking if I would apply for those and I'm like nope I actually want to stay here at Laurier. I love it so much. Like I would never have thought that that would happen. I never thought I would say that I would prefer to stay here than go back to Vancouver. Yeah. You just never know. Yeah. And also you grew up like outside of Edmonton, which is not a big city, but you're used to being in the city. Mm -hmm. And the campus that you work at at Laurier is in a smaller, I mean, Mm -hmm. a smaller city, a smaller kind of community. And, you know, mm-hmm. you went to school in Edmonton, Vancouver. So, yeah, it's just not what probably you envisioned. I never, ever expected this. Early 30s. Yeah. 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 So yeah, this is all yeah beyond expectation. Hmm. So, you know, I feel like Lisa M. I don't know if, you know, Lisa M. also has a Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of thinking about what she wants to do next. So I think she has a couple questions for you about that. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, your journey was really interesting to listen to. Um, I'm actually originally from Vancouver too, and I just moved oh. to Ontario for school. And now I'm kind of just here. Um, <laughs> cool. Do you like it here? Um, I do. I kind of see myself staying here for quite a while. Oh, good. Um, so I guess I was wondering for uh, undergraduates, especially um, who wanted to pursue a PhD, uh, I guess just some like factors to take into consideration for them, like what qualities do you think would make for a person that would want to go through the process? Huh, what qualities? Well, you would have to choose, I suppose, you would have to be willing to learn, first of all, and to think critically. Um, Time management is really important because they're going to throw a whole bunch of different things at you that you're going to have to do all at the same time with deadlines that, um, well, you're going to have to be disciplined in laying out certain personal deadlines to get things done. Um, I'm not sure if it's really a quality, but it's really important to choose an area that you enjoy learning about because you're going to have to focus and sweat and cry and even throw up a little about what you're, what you're writing about. And so you better like the topic. (laughs) Um, 
and be ready to kind of open your mind to new perspectives. Because I think sometimes we go in thinking that we know clearly what we want to study or what we think is interesting and then, or how we think something works in the world. And then we go in with that kind of, um, I guess, this bias. It's harder for us to open our mind to what other things might be happening to to kind of impact what's actually going on and in looking at more individual differences or contextual differences. And so being open to, to new perspectives. Uh, one thing I really had to get used to was being open to criticism. Um, yeah. They're going to rip your papers apart <laughs> and you will put hours and hours of work into these papers and they're just going to rip it apart over and over and over again. And how I ended up uh, interpreting all of the feedback was not so much I am horrible and stupid, which is how I used to think when I first got the feedback, but more they care enough to have read this so carefully to give me this good feedback because they want me to succeed and they know I can succeed. And they wouldn't have taken all that time to give me all that feedback if they didn't think I could do it. <laughs> yeah, that's So I had to positively reframe and accept criticism as learning opportunities. And once I did that, I was almost hungry for criticism. Like when, when professors didn't offer criticism on my paper, I would actually think they didn't read it. And I would wonder why there was nothing on the page because certainly my papers can't be perfect because yeah. a perfect paper is impossible to achieve. So they must have something to say. So um, if there was nothing on it, I would think they didn't read it. And I tell my students now when I offer them feedback that all that red that I put on there is love. Like yeah. red equals love. And I spent time. <laughs> To give you this feedback and that means I care about your like your success and how well you do so and your learning so that's why it's all marked up <laughs> uh, so that was one thing that I really had to learn um, and we kind of talked about this and and Lisa P had mentioned it is that how we have to be ready to work very hard on a path that is not linear mm. so you never know where the journey is going to take you you never know where the research is going to take you and so you kind of got to be um, prepared for things to not go as expected and also be flexible um, to change things as things come mm. so I think those are some of the key things that I kind of took away from grad school um, aside from also obviously working very hard yeah. um, <laughs> but um i think those yeah. are some good points especially the point about being open because i think the difference between undergraduate and grad school is that in undergraduate i mean there is flexibility and openness but they're in a way looking for a certain type of answer like it's mm -hmm. a little bit more formulaic Mm -hmm. Like you can get, you may write a really excellent paper, but if it's not within what they're looking for in the rubric or slightly off topic, you, you might not do very well. So there's more of a framework. But I think the further you get into graduate school, it's kind of like you're going into outer space in a way. 
<laughs> and, and there, some people found some planets and come up with some thoughts and ideas about them. But really, we're all trying to map it out still together. So there's not there's not the same sort of um, yeah, there's not like a set strategy. I think that's something I noticed when I went from my BA to my MA because I'm kind of like really structured. Mm -hmm. so it was kind of a big transition. And then not, yeah, like I think coming up with the research question and and adapting the research question is, um, is a tricky thing that you're constantly, like you're just always learning it, I think. Mm -hmm. in academia like even professors and stuff and I think when you're an undergrad there's kind of this assumption that like you know this is easy they got to figure like here's the standard research questions or whatever and it's just a different set of expectations so yeah yeah it's good that you touched on that um anything else you want to ask about Lisa um yeah I think like uh relating to those things um like asking on behalf of myself and other, I guess, like uh, recent graduates as well as students. I was wondering also for graduate school, um, I guess for like a lot of different options, like how would someone choose a specific topic of research and like how would they know that's right for them? Mm -hmm. So um, it's important to kind of think about it an area of interest before applying because a part of the application for grad school is that they're going to ask you to submit um, an, an idea for a proposal or at least articulate an area of research interest. So um, it's important to kind of think about generally what part of psychology you're interested in. So for example, for myself, I knew that I was interested in, in children and teenagers and I was interested in how they develop, how they develop when it comes to um, the internet and how the internet uh, might impact their cognitive skills. And so at that time, Facebook didn't really exist yet and all of these um, social media sites didn't really um, exist yet, but more and more people were playing so, games and What's that? I said you're dating yourself. Anyway. I, I know, right? <laughs> I definitely am. But technology progresses really fast. So I'm not that old. <laughs> um, I recently got an Instagram account, everyone. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> apparently there's TikTok now. And so I'm yeah. already behind. But anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's trying to find this area of interest. Um, and how someone can kind of figure out their area of interest um, deals or I guess involves reading a lot. So kind of reading a lot about um, psychology and um, thinking about in general what things you question about the world. So if it's psychology related to psychology, it's like what exactly about psychology because psychology is extremely broad um interests you is it learning is it relationships is it parenting is it emotions like what is it exactly and once you kind of have an idea um it's helpful to look at the websites of professors 
and see what kind of work that they're doing. So you might go to different psychology websites and just kind of browse around and see what other people are working on and read their papers because that will give you insight on what to, what to write in your um, graduate application and it will help you to um, kind of clarify what your interest is more specifically. And in your letter or in your application, you can say like this professor's um, work is very interesting and I think I would be a good fit to work right. with them um, for the following reasons. Yeah. Because one of the things about applying to grad school is that they need to be able to match you with a professor who could supervise your yeah, research. Exactly. And so a lot of times students may not get into a program, not because they're not smart enough or not because they didn't get, the, get good grades, but because yeah. they couldn't find a good match for right. a research supervisor. Yeah. So that part is the critical piece is to make sure that, the adjudication committee can see that, oh, this person's research clearly matches this professor's, so they would have someone to supervise them. They're more likely to get in. And then, of course, you still have to get good grades and all of that, but it's, it's, it's very important to have that match. And so looking at professor's work is, is a really important part of it. And then, of course, if you... Um, are not once you get into grad school and you start attending classes and you start like thinking about things a bit more and doing a bit more reading and you want to change your focus a little bit or change your precise like ideas that's totally fine like while you're writing your thesis that's probably going to happen anyway but to get in it's important to have an at least an idea of what you want to study yeah i really I don't know. I really like your point about looking up the schools and the professors and what are they doing? Because I mean, that's what I tell my clients mm -hmm. and, and, and that's even what I tell um, some, some graduate students I have that I'm coaching through writing their thesis. Mm -hmm. I tell them like, you need to look at this as not as like someone's, you know, accepting you or saying, Hey, like you're so you're smart enough. You got into this program, but this is like an internship to become a professor. Mm -hmm. So you have mm -hmm. to choose the program and the people that you want to train you to do what you think you want to do in the end. So mm -hmm. it's partly about them choosing you, which definitely they're choosing you, right? Cause they're investing in you. But it's also about you choosing them. Like make yeah. sure you're choosing the right school for you. So, you know, everyone might want to go to Harvard, for example. But Harvard may not be the best school for you if they don't have the professors who are interested in the topic that you're interested in. You mm -hmm. know, a Canadian school might be better for you. Yeah. So it's and that's a that really, really good point. Because really, as, a, as an applicant, you're, you're interviewing your potential supervisor as well, because yeah. that supervisor, if you're not a good fit, mm -hmm. they can make or break how long it takes for you to graduate. Right. It <laughs> so it's really important that you have, have, that you have, like, you mesh well with your research supervisor and, um, and that you kind of, like, you get along and can work well together. 
So yeah, that's a really good point that it does go both ways. You're, they're choosing you, but you also have to choose them. Yeah. And you know, on that topic, this is not grad school, but in undergrad, I was in an honors program and we had to write a thesis and I ended up writing like a hundred page thesis. So <laughs> it's kind of equivalent to an <laughs> MA project, but the supervisor I started out with, he knew the topic, but it wasn't the right fit for me in terms of like what I needed to get the project done. Like I wasn't getting the feedback I needed and stuff. And so partway through, I had to change supervisors and I ended up taking an extra year of school mm -hmm. and the extra year of school was just getting the thesis done. And I took one extra course Chinese, which ended up leading to a bunch of other cool stuff like going right. to China and all these things. But that's the impact it can have if you're not a good fit with your supervisor. So I even recommend to my clients, or even when I was like thinking of doing a PhD, is also find out a bit about the person's management style. Mm -hmm. Like talk to previous graduate students, if you're really serious and find out what is this person like. So I was thinking of going to Berkeley and I talked to some of the current PhD students of the person I was, I wanted to have as a supervisor and found out what it was like to work with them. And it, you know, it was really good. So even like, if you're really serious about this, like down to that level, like the seriousness you would put toward, um, you know, looking for your dream job or something. Mm -hmm. That's kind of off topic of how do you choose a research topic, but <laughs> Um, along those lines, what are some things, because not everybody wants to, you know, after they finish their BA, MA, or PhD in psychology, not everybody's going to go off and be a professor. Mm -hmm. What are some other things that some of your students have done with their degrees? Uh, so some of them have gone into counseling or have become therapists. I have some... Um, students and also my own colleagues and friends who work for Statistics Canada. So they do research for the government and also have others who are researching for the private sector um, or being a research associate for different industries. Because the thing about getting your PhD is that they're training you to be able to conduct research. So many of uh, my colleagues and friends are conducting research outside of academia. But some are also working in school administrative positions, so for the school board, or they might have started their own consulting firm. So I have some colleagues who have started their own um, like parenting consulting firms, and they have different programs and workshops for healthy parenting. Um, but to be honest, like most jobs with... Uh, if you have a BA or a BSc in general, usually additional certifications or schooling is required for most jobs. Um, just because BAs and BSCs do tend to be more general. So even if I have like a general like BA in psychology or a general BA, BSc in psychology, mm -hmm. I would probably have to get some other qualification or certification or go to more do more school to um get a job in a, in an area specific to my area of interest yeah that's a good point 
Just because so, it's not a professional degree, right? It's not like yeah. you're going to teaching school or like yeah, you're not an engineer. Yeah. Engineering or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just because we're, we're going to wrap up pretty quick here, I want to make okay. sure I don't miss asking a few questions. So I'm really interested in the research and the work you're doing with adolescents. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your care project and then maybe also what do you think are some lessons you guys have learned from participating in that research and that project that might be helpful to undergrad student students who are kind of it's their first year they're coming into school they're having to make new friends like that kind of situation does that mm -hmm. um yeah so like in a bit of a nutshell, I guess, my care lab is, it's actually, uh, it's a group of students and myself. So there are approximately 25 of us of all sorts of dif disciplines. So they're not all psychology students. They're um, game design students, um, journalism students, social justice, youth and children's studies. So it's quite broad, criminology students. And so it's quite diverse and we're broken up into three streams. So I have one stream that helps me with my research projects of which I have five. And then I have another stream that helps me with community and university knowledge mobilization, which is just a fancy way of saying, um, how do we share our knowledge in an accessible way to diverse audiences? And so I have a team of students who help me think creatively about how to do that. And then I have another stream who helped me with my girls group um, that I mentioned before. So the girls programming. And so with these three streams that I'm kind of, that I'm managing, um, they all kind of work hand in hand. So my research is informing how we share and what we share to the community and to the university. And then my girls programming helps me to do that at a more relational, in a more relational way to yeah. young girls. So that's kind of the care lab in general um, and in a nutshell. And I guess, what was the second part of your question? Um, so first of all, that's really cool. And I'm wondering if at the end of this, we're gonna find out a little bit more about how to get in touch with you. And I don't know if there's opportunities for people to volunteer, but mm -hmm. Um, the other question was, you know, having had that experience in doing that type of research, what advice would you give to a first year undergrad that might help them to build and form healthy relationships throughout their degree? Mm, okay. So it's, there's kind of two questions there. So the first one is as a, as an undergrad, I think it's really important to open your doors um, to as many possibilities. And if there are people accepting um, bachelor students to volunteer in their research labs, I would take it because it's a very rare opportunity to get that chance to do research um, outside of a graduate school. So all of my students in my lab, apart from two, are all undergraduate students. So they all have this opportunity to conduct research and have their names on publications during wow. undergrad and then that will help them to get into grad school later so mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why i like having this opportunity for undergrads um, in my lab mm -hmm. 
Um, in terms of building positive relationships, well, this is this is part of what we're all kind of kind of working on um, as human beings in general, whether we're students or adults. But it's trying to cultivate a feeling of belonging. So when I have conversations with my students, many of them feel that's very very important to have a space and where they can feel that they truly belong, where they can feel accepted for who they are, where they can be vulnerable and not be judged. And so I try to create this feeling of belonging in my lab by helping all of us listen without judgment, um, to be honest about our thoughts and our beliefs, but also kind in the way we communicate it. Um, I think it's very important for us to be open to criticism. I think today it's very hard for people to take criticism because it hurts their feelings mm -hmm. and then they take it personally and then they get defensive. But ultimately we all have things to learn and we need to try and open ourselves up to receiving criticism as an opportunity for learning and growing mm -hmm. and also offering criticism to help others learn and grow, right? So that we can all be better human beings. Um, and then I also think that it's important for all of us to show and practice gratitude. So I emphasize gratitude a lot with my students and, um, and have them kind of even write down three things three, that they're grateful for about their day oh, or their week. And yeah, so we do that before every meeting. I actually have them share um, three things they're grateful for and about that week and something that really bothered them about the week. So, yeah. so then we can also be supportive of some of the struggles that we might be going through in a stressful, you know, during the stressful year. So they get to share something that they're struggling with, but then also have an opportunity to show gratitude. So um, yeah. we try to do that for each other too. Cool. Those are some of the things that I think are, are important for long-lasting relationships and meaningful relationships. Yeah, good, solid advice. <laughs> Easier said than done, but it's important work to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, just very quickly, uh, what would be like one book that you would recommend? Oh, I had so much trouble with this one. I have so many books. Um, can I just rattle them off? <laughs> uh, go ahead. Okay, so Nonviolent Communications by Rosenberg. Uh, I really like Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Give and Take by Adam Grant. Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. That one's super good. Everyone should read that. Also, actually, all of them are good, so I don't know why I emphasize that one in particular. And The Power of Habit by Charles oh, Duhigg. Oh, yeah. I've read that. That one's a good one. Um, but if people don't have time for reading, which is often the case, um, I have two podcasts that I really like. Okay. And that are psychology related. So it's the Happiness Lab with Lori Santos mm. and How To with Charles Duhigg. Okay, cool. Thank you for joining us today for our episode and stay tuned for the second part of our podcast. We'll be featuring a relaxing meditation and a writing prompt to help you get more in tune with your inner thoughts. During this breathing meditation, you will focus on your breath. This will calm your mind and relax your body. There is no right or wrong way to meditate. 
Whatever you experience during breathing meditation is right for you. Don't try to make anything happen, just observe. Begin by finding a comfortable position, but one in which you will not fall asleep. Sitting on the floor with your legs crossed is a good position to try. Close your eyes or focus on one spot in the room. Roll your shoulders slowly forward and then slowly back. Lean your head from side to side, lowering your left ear towards your left shoulder and then your right ear toward your right shoulder. Relax your muscles. Your body will continue to relax as you meditate. Observe your breathing. Notice how your breath flows in and out. Make no effort to change your breathing in any way. Simply notice how your body breathes. Your body knows how much air it needs. Sit quietly, seeing in your mind's eye your breath flowing gently in and out of your body. When your attention wanders, as it will, just focus back again on your breathing. Notice any stray thoughts, but don't dwell on them. Simply let the thoughts pass. See how your breath continues to flow deeply, calmly. Notice the stages of a complete breath. From the in-breath to the pause that follows, the exhale, and the pause before taking another breath. See the slight breaks between each breath. Feel the air entering through your nose. Picture the breath flowing through the cavities in your sinuses and then down to your lungs. As thoughts intrude, allow them to pass and return your attention to your breathing. See the air inside your body after you inhale, filling your body gently. Notice how the space inside your lungs becomes smaller after you exhale and the air leaves your body. Feel your chest and stomach gently rise and fall with each breath. Now as you inhale, count silently. One. As you exhale, count. One. Wait for the next breath and count again. One. Exhale. One. Inhale. One. Exhale. One. Continue to count each inhalation and exhalation as one. Notice how your body feels. See how calm and gentle your breathing is and how relaxed your body feels. Now it is time to gently reawaken your body and mind. Keeping your eyes closed, notice the sounds around you. Feel the floor beneath you. Feel the clothes against your body. Wiggle your fingers and toes. Shrug your shoulders. Open your eyes and remain sitting for a few moments longer. Straighten out your legs and stretch your arms and legs gently. Sit for a few moments more, enjoying how relaxed you feel, 
and experiencing your body reawaken and your mind returning to its usual level of alertness. Slowly return to standing position and continue with the rest of your day feeling re-energized. so much again for everyone for listening to our interview with Danielle Law about being a professor and also special thanks to Lisa for putting together a lovely meditation on gratitude. The writing prompt today is on the topic of gratitude inspired by the interview with Danielle where she talked about how in her team environment she starts every meeting with three things to be three things that everyone's grateful for and something they're struggling with and I think that's a really great practice. If you want to learn more about gratitude you can easily google it on the internet. There's some great TED talks. A really short one that gets to the point is called The Science of Gratitude. It's about two minutes. It's a TED talk so I suggest looking it up. It was inspiration for these writing prompts. So I'm going to give you three writing prompts. You can turn off the podcast and pause in between them, or you can listen to all three and do it at the end. It's up to you. The first thing I want you to do is to write down something you've achieved this week. The second thing I'd like you to do is to write down something you would like to tell someone that you care about, why you think they're special, and then to send them that note today. And the third thing I'd like you to do is to write down something you are grateful for today. This is a great practice. You can find gratitude journals online. You can just get a journal and write down things you're grateful for. I have a jar I write on sticky notes things I'm grateful for so that when I'm having a rough day, I can just go to the jar and pull out one of those things. A daily kind of gratitude writing practice is something worth getting into. I just want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions, we're happy to take them. To find out more about FAO academic writing, you can check us out at our website, www.fao.ca or follow us on social media at FAO underscore academic writing. If you need any extra support with your academic studies or writing skills, send us a message anytime. We look forward to helping you reach your full potential on the page and in life.